Bibles tonight, if you would please, to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua, chapter 7. How many of you remember the song, Achy Breaky Heart? Oh, wow. Everybody knows that song. How many of you know who Billy Ray Cyrus is? Okay, how many of you like the song? And how many like Bill Ray Cyrus? Okay, well, there's no relevance at all to those questions tonight. I just want you to know I am praying for you. And uh, if you still got a mullet like Billy Ray Cyrus, there's hope for you. Not much hope, but there is hope for you because we're praying for you. Well, the title of the message tonight is actually a play on words, but my sermon doesn't really have anything to do with Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, Rather, tonight we're going to talk about... I'm sorry? Praise the Lord. Okay, she doesn't want me to preach about Billy Ray Cyrus. And believe me, I do not want to preach about him. Uh, But anyway, it's really the story of a man by the name of Achan. And his his name is actually uh, associated in the Bible as a play on words because we find in this chapter a place called the Valley of Achor. And the Valley of Achor, the word Achor, is actually a play on the name Achan. And it actually means trouble or disaster. And when Achan did what he did back here in chapter 6, it did spell trouble and disaster for Israel. So this evening, we're going to talk about the sin of Achan. You might remember I preached about this a little while ago when we were doing the study on Old Testament events. And in that sermon, we were talking about secret sins. And it was a secret sin by just one man in Israel. Just one man out of all the thousands of men in Israel The sin by one man caused terrible trouble to come upon the Israelites. And I think that's a reminder for all of us that it is possible that one person of our church could be involved in sin and that one person can be responsible for God withdrawing his blessings from the rest of the body. We're going to read about this tonight, uh, Joshua chapter 7. So we're going to start with the first five verses. Then we're going to pick up the rest of it as we go through the sermon tonight. So stand with me, please. Let's read these first five verses of Joshua chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing... And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And all the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all of the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few." So there went up thither of the people of them about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about 30 and 6 men, for they chased them from before the gate even to Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted. That's the Israelites. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of this word tonight. Help us to realize some very important truths from your word tonight. Help us to understand, Lord, that sin is a very serious issue. Sin in our church is something that needs to be found out and looked at very carefully. All sin must be repented and and confessed. And we just ask you, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts tonight and help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You notice there in that seventh chapter, verse number one, that the chapter begins with the word but. 
And you know you're in trouble when someone sticks their big butt in your story because uh, but can often mean that there's going to be trouble that's going to follow it. And certainly we do find that's the case here. Uh, sometimes people will come to you and they'll say, well, I really didn't want to say anything about that, but... And you know they really did want to say something about it. And what follows that but is something that you are not going to like. Well, it's the same thing we find here in chapter 7. A great victory had just taken place at Jericho, but chapter 7 begins with the word but. And that word but tells us something about tragedy that happened. So let's begin the lesson tonight by talking about Israel's disaster. Achan's name and Achan's actions in this chapter both spell disaster for Israel. Now, here you have Israel that in just a short amount of time, they've been riding this wave of victory. They've just conquered the most heavily fortified city in all the land of Canaan. They came, uh, came out of there with a great victory against a fearsome foe. And now they're brought down to utter despair of defeat at the hands of a little-known, ill-equipped, puny city-state by the name of Ai. Whenever we think about Joshua we almost always associate his name with Jericho. I mean, that's the first thing that we think about when we think about Joshua. We get that little song going in our head, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Everybody know that? And the walls came tumbling down. And so we associate Joshua with that great victory at Jericho. And I'm sure when we started the book of Joshua, the first thing that came to people's minds, uh, or when are we going to get to that great story of how the walls fell down at Jericho? And, of course, it's good for us to think about that. Indeed, it was a great victory, a miracle that was given by God. And it was a victory that came about by strict obedience to God's commands. It was a very disciplined victory. It meant that every person in Israel, they had to pay attention to what God said. They had to follow that ultra-strange battle plan that God had given. And it brought them a victory. But here we see that the victory in Jericho is in chapter number 6. And if the same diligence of chapter number 6 is not followed in chapter 7, then there won't be the same result, and indeed there wasn't. Now, I think that maybe some of you tonight, you, you might be in chapter 7 of your life tonight, and you're wondering sometimes, what happened to chapter number 6? I mean, things were going so good, and, and I was really riding my spiritual high, and I had spiritual victories, but now I've got problems in my life. There are things that I'm going through. What happened to chapter number 6? Well, here's what you'll find out, that you can come out of a great spiritual victory, and if you're not watching, if you're not aware that un- right around that next corner, that enemy is still there, he's waiting to trip you and to fail you, and if you're not aware of that, you're going to be in trouble. Now, what is it then that led here to the defeat at the hands of Ai? Well, I actually think there are two main reasons for the disaster. The first one that we find here is too much self-confidence. And verse number three, I think we can plainly see the self-confidence of these Israelites. See what Joshua did? He sent some men to check out the next foe that they needed to fight. And these men were out there searching around, and they came up upon this little town of Ai. We don't know exactly how many men fought in the battle of Jericho. I I think that probably by, by reading the text and looking at how Joshua is so careful to enlist all of the tribes of Israel, 
Remember we talked about how he uh, got, a, got a commitment from the three and a half tribes that were, or two and a half tribes rather, that were on the eastern side of Jordan, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. He made sure that he got a commitment from them to help in the fight. I think that sort of tells us that in the battle of Jericho that everybody was involved. Uh, as many as 600,000 men were probably involved in that battle of Jericho. But this report comes back, and Joshua's men bring back a report that says that Ai, that's nothing like Jericho. And so perhaps maybe 3,000 men, that will do fine. We can go up there and we can conquer this little podunk town. Now, do you see a problem in that right up front? This report that was brought back by those men is an indication that they had forgotten about how they really won the battle at Jericho. They, they were thinking that it was the might of the army, 600,000 men, that that's what brought down the walls of Jericho. And they forgot that really the reason the walls fell was because of the captain of the Lord's host. It was that angelic army that was commanded by Jesus Christ himself that knocked down the walls of Jericho. But here we see they seem to have forgotten that. It, it, they think, well, it's our might that caused that to fall. So Israel was really overconfident that, at this point, and it leads to the second reaction for the disaster, and that's too much self-reliance. Israel thought, well, 3,000 men, that'll do fine. We can go up there and we can fight the battle for ourselves, by ourselves. Well, one missing key here is the failure to take this thing to God in prayer. If you remember way back in the very beginning when we first started talking about the book of Joshua, I was kind of giving you a character analysis of Joshua. And I said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really record any major sin that Joshua committed. We can read this entire book and we can't find here that Joshua made any major mistakes. At least the Bible doesn't say so. And even in this chapter, it really doesn't tell us that Joshua failed to talk to the Lord. It makes no comment about that. But it seems like this is the very evident thing that happened here, that there was a failure to take this matter to God and to call on him, because if they had done so, they would have known what the proper timing was to go up against Ai. But what Israel decided to do, they will rely upon the report of the scouts. They'll listen to what they say. And if 3,000 men is all that's needed, let's go up there and let's conquer Ai. Well, do you remember this, that Relying on somebody's report is exactly the thing that got Moses into trouble. They came up to the borders of, of, uh, of Canaan and Moses sent over those spies and the spies came back with a report and the report was bleak and dismal. And instead of Moses calling upon God and saying, God, what do you want me to do about it now? Instead, he, he took the, the advice of the spies. Moses did, the people did. And they said, we can't go in and possess the land. Well, here we have a different report. It's a, it's a rosy report this time, but the same thing is happening. In neither case do they go and consult God about what they should do. And that is the very mistake that many people of God make. They say, I'm so spiritual, I'm so godly, I am so holy. What I can do, I can just forge out on my own. I can go out there and I can make things happen. And you know, that's the very same sin that got the world in trouble in the first place. It was the sin of pride. In this case, it's spiritual pride. And you need to learn something, that if you are a proud person spiritually, if you think that you can go it on your own, then you need to be aware of what the Word of God says. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
Whenever you come to the place that you say, I don't need God, I don't need to pray about this thing, I don't need Him because I've already made up my mind exactly what I'm going to do, I'm going to go out there on my own and everything is going to be just fine. You'll find out that everything may not be just fine and you're setting yourself up for a horrible spiritual defeat. So when you step out on your own and you're not sure about where God is leading, trouble is going to be around the corner. So here, self-confidence and self-reliance, that's the problem. You see, if they had gone to ask God what they should do next, God would have told them, don't do anything. Don't take an army anywhere. The first thing that you have to do, you've got to get rid of sin in the camp. And then when you get rid of sin, I'll tell you the directions and tell you exactly what you need to do to defeat that next city. So here we are. Even if Israel had decided to take all 600,000 men up to Ai, it wouldn't have made any difference. They would have lost that battle because they were not following what God said to do. God's hand was not in this. And you can be sure of this. When God is not in your plans... No matter how good you are, no matter how able you are, no matter how spiritual you are, you are going to fail. So that was a disaster for Israel. They were looking at themselves instead of at God. Now let's notice second here, Joshua's despair. There's Israel's disaster and that brings on Joshua's despair. Now look at verse number six, if you would. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God that we had been content and dwelt on the other side, Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Well, one thing we recognize here, Joshua does deserve some credit in this. I mean, he, he's defeated. He knows something has gone terribly wrong. And this is really a remarkable thing here because of all the battles that we find fought in uh, the book of Joshua... This is really, actually, the only battle where there is recorded any casualties for the children of Israel. Even when they went up against that fortified city of Jericho, the Bible records no casualties. And that was a remarkable defeat. Well, here, with 36 men being killed, I don't care who who the general is. I mean, if you go out and you send 3,000 men up against another army and 36 get killed, to you, that's an acceptable loss. I mean, that's not bad at all. 36 men out of 3,000, less than, or just slightly more, I should say, than, than a, about a 1% casualty rate. You know, if, if Eisenhower had been able to uh, pull off D-Day with only a 1% casualty rate, well, he wouldn't have become president of the United States. He'd been king of the world. Nobody could do that. But losing 36 men, that's too much for Joshua. And so what does Joshua do? First thing he does, he gets down on his knees. He goes to the ground. And here we find him crying in regret. Joshua cries in regret. Now, this is what I think that, uh, uh, what I really like about Joshua. I mean, I, I think that every one of those soldiers that were killed, they meant something to him. This was like having his own sons killed in battle. Here, Israel is a close-knit group. 
They're a, they're a na- nation of, of very close families. And to have those men killed in the battle, well, that was just too much for Joshua, just like his own kids have been killed. You know, sometimes we pick up our paper and we read that and we look at the casualty rate of our men who are dying in Iraq and we don't give that a second thought. And we, we really don't stop to thank the Lord that we've got some men out there who will still give their lives for this country. They'll sacrifice themselves for us. And, and we just really need to be glad that it's not San Francisco and the Bay Area that's in charge of defending our freedom. Because if that was the way it was, we'd be spreading prayer cloths about right now and we'd be bowing down to Allah. But we've got some men who will stand up and fight for us. Well, Joshua here cried in regret, but he came to the wrong conclusion about what happened. In verse number 7, he said, we would have been so better off. We would have been better off if we'd stayed on the other side of Jordan. And so Joshua's conclusion is, we crossed the Jordan in obedience, and look what we've got to show for it. Well, have you ever seen Christians that act like that sometimes? I mean, uh, they obey what God says and things don't turn out really sparkling rosy like they think they ought to. And they step back and they say, well, what did I do that for? Why did I obey God? Look, look what I've got now. And so they try to blame God for the problem. And these cries of regret, this is all too familiar for the children of Israel. You go back to uh, Exodus 14. You remember they're trapped up against the Red Sea? And what did they say? God had just delivered them by all those, those plagues to get them out of the land of Egypt. They get up against the Red Sea and they say, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. In chapter 16, they said it before God sent the manna. They said, would to God that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In chapter 17, they were thirsty. And they said, Wherefore hast thou brought us up out of the land of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? In Numbers 14, 3, when they're at Kadesh Barnea, standing right outside the promised land, the report came back from those spies, and it was that dismal report. And they said, Were it not better for us to return to the land of Egypt? And so now they have all these things mixed up. They're confusing their obedience to God as the cause of their troubles. Now, when you obey God and trouble does come, don't blame it on the obedience. Don't say, well, only if I'd just taken another course of action. What if I just didn't obey God? When you disobey and trouble comes, in a sense, it's all right to be regretful. But if you have trouble in your obedience, then you've got to look a little bit deeper and find out there must be another problem here. Something else is going on. You need to find out what that is. You know, today, if you... Look at the psychiatrist and psychologist. They always tend to throw blame in all the wrong places. You ever hear anybody that went to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, well, here's your problem. You're a sinner. You're, you're just a sinner against God. You've committed sin. That's why you've got all these problems. You ever hear a psychiatrist say anything like that? What do they say? Oh, they blame your problems on the environment. Your, your problems are because you were raised in a, in a, in a poor household. You had a bad childhood. And so they excuse personal responsibilities. They blame it on everything but the real problem. And the real problem is this old sinful nature that all of us have. And that's where the blame lies. Well, here's Joshua. He's ready to put the blame on the wrong thing when the real problem is sin. And what the elders of Israel should have done, they should have said, where have we sinned? What have we done wrong? What's wrong here? Then the next thing we see in Joshua's despair is confusion over defeat. Joshua makes this cry of regret, of regret and that, that transforms itself into simple confusion. 
Because here it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to conquer mighty Jericho and lose the pitifully poor Ai. It's just like going against Sacramento, winning a great battle there, and then losing to Katati. It doesn't make sense. And so in verse number 8, he says, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their back on their enemies? And so he says, God, I'm totally perplexed about this. I don't know how to explain it. Don't know what to do. Lucy, you got some explaining to do. Tell me what's going on. Well, how do you do this? How do you cross the Jordan on dry ground? How do you conquer fortified Jericho and then end around or turn around and lose to Ai? So no wonder he's confused. But we do see something here. He's starting to get right on the right track. Something is wrong. And that leads to the next great statement by Joshua. And it tells us he's looking in the right place. Because next comes concern for God's honor. In the end of verse number 9, Joshua says, And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Now here is the fear. The Canaanites will hear what happened at Ai. And the thing that will stick out in their minds is that now Israel is vulnerable. That victory over Jericho, I mean, that, that was just a fluke. But here we see they were defeated by Ai. And so now the Canaanites, instead of being fearful and afraid to go against the armies of Israel like they were back in chapter 6 at the very end, now Joshua's concerned that they'll get their confidence up and they'll get all the people together and they'll come against Israel en masse. So here's some very clear thinking by Joshua. The actions of God's people have an effect on those who are around. And when God's people, people act poorly, people will think poorly of God's people. You see, if you're a member of Brean Baptist Church and you get involved in immorality, you get into lies and scandal, then the people of the community are going to think poorly of our church and they'll think poorly of our God. And so this is the very reason right here, folks, why we believe in church discipline. We've got to find out when we've got sin in the church. We've got to get rid of that sin, get that sin confessed, and we have to do it by whatever means necessary. Because if we don't, our church ends up in spiritual defeat. So now Joshua's laid this all out before God. He says, God, what's the problem here? Help us to figure this thing out. Well, of course, it's no surprise God had the answer all along. And the problem here is that Joshua did not start out with a prayer of praise for anticipated victory over Ai. Rather, he ends up in a prayer of regret and a prayer of despair because of this awful defeat. But God does have the answer. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen, and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed thing from among you. So here's the problem. It's Achan's disobedience. Now, first we have Israel's disaster that causes Joshua's despair and all of it's brought about by Achan's disobedience. Now, we go back to chapter 6. We find out there that God had given a command about the spoils of war. He said, I, there's some particular things that I want you to do with what you capture in Jericho. Look at chapter 6, if you would, verse number 19. It says, but all the silver and gold... And vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. 
So God says, all the spoils of war, those things belong to me. And what you don't burn up, I want you to take these things, silver and gold and the iron, and you put that into my treasury. But what Achan did, he disobeyed the command. But when Achan disobeyed, he didn't, God did not consider this to be Achan's sin alone. He said, Israel has sin. Verse 11 says, Israel has sin. Now, there's a very definite lesson there. When we permit sin to go on, it also makes us complicit in that sin. As America today heads down this slippery slope into homosexuality, into a drug culture, into pornography, into self-consumed lifestyles, into contempt for human life, abortion of the young, euthanasia of the old and helpless, you better understand this, that all of us are going to be held accountable for what America does. And all of us are going to suffer in the problems that America has. And when Christians decide, well, we're going to vote for our party. And it doesn't make any difference if our party uh, supports such platforms as abortion and homosexuality. We're concerned about economic policies. We're worried about defense policies. We're worried about social agendas. And so we vote those things rather than decency and morality. And you'll find this to be true, that if your party supports such things, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter to me. If your party supports those things, get out of that party. That's not a party that you need to be in. You don't need to go to that kind of a party. And so, Achan's sin, it affects all of Israel. And the sin of America is going to affect all of us in here tonight. We're all going to suffer for what we permit. Well, the sin is so serious that in verse number 11, there are six things that are used to describe it. Sin, transgression, disobedience, stealing, deception, and sacrilege. Well, we're going to notice three things about Achan's disobedience. The first one is dissatisfaction with his possessions. See, the problem here is that Achan did not like the way that God had ordered his life. And so instead of looking at what God promised by obedience... Achan was simply looking to change his life right now. Now, Achan was probably thinking this way. Look how hard I've had it all these years. I've been out there wandering around in the wilderness. I have no land to call my own. I don't have anything that belongs to me. I have no possessions. I have nothing at all saved up for the future. But now I've got an opportunity to change all that. And so Achan says, well, if it means disobedience to God to change things, then that's what I'm going to do. I've got to improve my life. And so I'm going to step out and do this thing. And you know that happens to many Christians. They're not satisfied where they are. They're not content with what God has given them. And so they think, well, I'll be satisfied by doing otherwise. I'll be satisfied by going elsewhere. And they go and they don't consult God about it. They just say, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get what's rightfully mine. Following God does not bring them sufficient satisfaction. We need to realize just how diabolical those kinds of thoughts are. It was those kinds of thoughts that got the whole world in trouble in the first place. It was those thoughts that introduced sin into the universe. That's exactly what Satan said. He said, I don't like my position. I don't like where God's put me. I don't like being subject to God. I want to be God. I will exalt my throne. I will put my, home, uh, my throne above the heavens. I will be like the Most High. And so Satan rebelled and God had to cast him out. And you know, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with the same kinds of thoughts. Satan came to Eve and he said, Eve, what do you mean God said you can't eat of that tree? 
The only reason that God doesn't want you to eat of that tree is because he knows when you do, you'll become just like him. And when you become like him, you don't have to bow down to God anymore. And so God's afraid that you're going to become a God just like he is. And so Adam and Eve, they weren't content with where they were. They thought, well, I'm missing something. There's something that I don't have. And so they were dissatisfied with the place where God put them. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't fall into the same temptation. When you pray to God and he tells you what he wants you to do and where he wants you, be content with God's answer. That's always the best place for you. Now, of course, there's a way to strive for more. Don't think that I'm trying to squelch anyone's ambition because I'm not trying to do that. There's nothing wrong with ambition at all. But I think it has to be the same kind of ambition that the Apostle Paul had. He was willing to do what God said. And whatever state that left him in, no matter what happened to him, no matter what it did to him physically and economically or anything else, he just wanted what God wanted for his life. And so he wanted what God decided, not what he decided. So Achan starts out with dissatisfaction. After that comes dishonesty in the cover-up. Verses 13 through 18, we have a description of how Joshua found out this guilty party. Now, we might think, we know this would be a very difficult thing to do. There are 600,000 men who were soldiers in Israel who fought in the battle of Jericho. One man out of 600,000 took what he wasn't supposed to take. So how are we going to find out who that man was? How are we going to do that? Well, fortunately, I say fortunately, but Israel was divided into tribes. There are family groups there. There are households. And some have even suggested that what might have been done is the high priest took the Urim and the Thummim, uh, those special divining stones that were kept in the pouch on the high priest's garments, that maybe they used that to help direct this. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us the exact method, but God is directing the process. And I don't think it took very long for them to narrow this down to Achan. And I can imagine Achan, he's thinking, 600,000 men, they're not going to find me. What are the chances of their finding out that I'm the one who did this? But things started getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer all the time to him. Now Achan gets a little bit antsy about things. And he's getting worried now. They're about to find him. Well, finally, of course, they do pin it on Achan. And here's the thing about Achan. The sin that he committed was not hastily devised. No, Achan knew exactly what he was doing. And so when he sinned, he made very sure that he was going to try to cover up the sin. He wanted to hide it. And when he was caught, he explained it in verse 21. He says, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And you know what happens when you try to cover up sin? The Bible describes it in both Old and New Testaments. In Numbers 32, verse 23, it says, And be sure your sin will find you out. In Hosea, chapter 8, verse 7, For they have sown to the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. In the New Testament, in Galatians 6, verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So sooner or later, those secret sins are going to be found out. King David found that to be true. He tried to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. David ended up in murder. 
But then God revealed it to the prophet Nathan. Do you remember that? God told Nathan what happened. David tried to deny and he says, Oh, I didn't have sexual relations with that woman. Nathan came along and he said, I've got the blue dress. So he had had all the proof that he needed. Sooner or later, your sins are going to find you out. Now here's what happened because of this sin. It caused destruction of his life. So we have dissatisfaction, you have dishonesty, and that led to destruction. Look at verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. Now, there it is. That's that play on words I was telling you about. The valley of Achor. It means trouble. It means destruction. You can actually read a little bit later about this in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. Hosea mentions this. He mentions the valley of Achor. And he was referring to the same sin that Achan committed 600 years before his time. Look at verse number 25. Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? Another play on words. Why have you achored us? Why have you achened us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, Valley of Disaster unto this day. Now we're going to finish up the sermon here with some very quick lessons that I want to give you. Here's some things that you need to say to yourself that we learn from this lesson about Achan. About Achan. Number one is that my sin never stays secret. You may try to cover up your sin, but you need to watch out because it's going to be found out. How many of you have been reading in the papers recently about this trial of the doctor who uh, thought that he was chatting online with a 13-year-old girl? Remember that? And you know what happened? He, he goes and he shows up at the place that he thinks at this girl's house. And what's waiting for him? TV cameras. And now the whole world knows about what he thought was secret. Oh, what a surprise. The world knows about it. Listen to what Jesus said about it. And this really ought to make you think twice. Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So lesson number one, your sins do not stay secret. Lesson number two, my sin hurts others. You know what happens when you throw a rock into a still pool of water? You see the rippling effect, the ripples go out, and that's exactly what happens when you sin Because sin has a rippling effect. It'll affect your family and it'll affect your church. Now you may say, well, it's my life. I can do what I want to do. I don't affect anyone else. Take a look at what sin has done to families. Try telling that it's my life. I do what I want to do. It doesn't affect anybody else. Try telling that to a child that grew up with an alcoholic father or mother. Try telling that to a little baby that has fetal alcohol syndrome. Even try telling it to the church at Corinth that we're studying on Sunday mornings because the Bible says there, because of sin, some in that church died. So your sin does affect other people. It can hurt others. Number three, my sin hinders my prayers. Now back in verse number 10, God told Joshua, he said, get thee up. 
Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? He says, Joshua, what are you doing praying to me? Now, can you imagine God saying that to someone who's praying? Stop praying. Stop praying. Why did he tell him that? He couldn't pray because God said, there is sin here. The sin has to be taken care of first. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There are too many times when we go to the Lord in prayer, we keep praying, we keep praying, but we don't confess. We have sin in our life and we expect God to do something for us. When we have full intention, we're going to carry on with the sin that we're committing. Don't expect God is going to answer prayers. Sin hinders prayer. Number four, God always punishes sin. Now, there's one commentator who wrote, I'd like to sugarcoat this story and say that after Achan confessed, God forgave him and everything was fine and dandy. But God is God. And he possesses a fierce anger towards sin. He always punishes sin. At this critical time in the life of Israel, he demonstrated a radical response to sin. You may be thinking, I don't like that picture of the Old Testament God. So harsh and angry towards sin. Sorry, but you don't have the freedom to create your own sentimental concept of a sweet, tolerant God who never offends anyone. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Do you recall how God responded to a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? They bragged to Peter in the church that they were giving a certain amount of money, but they were lying and holding back on God. They dropped dead right there on the spot. Do you realize that the whole world has a skewed concept of God? We, we've put God into our little box here, And God is only allowed to do the things that we permit God to do. And so we think, oh, God is so sweet. God is so gentle. God is a baby-kissing politician. He's never going to get anybody angry. God's never going to hurt anybody. He's as harmless as a little fly. You better think twice about that. Because God tells us, well, Joshua, let me just read what Joshua says. What wilt thou do unto thy great name. You know, that's a great question. What wilt thou do unto thy great name? You know what the Bible says that God will do about his great name? He will exalt it above everything. Every person will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't just mean save people, not just his people. All will bow to him. And the Bible says that the fearful and unbelieving, all whoremongers, all liars... Everyone who will not repent and confess their sins will have their part in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. Well, you better be careful when you think about God as being sweet and gentle, and that's all that he ever is. He's also a God of wrath, and he's a God who punishes sin. God always punishes sin. Now, that leads me to the final lesson. Confess and repent of sin. Well, Achan did confess. But he didn't confess the sin until he was caught. In this story, what Achan did, he stood there while they went through all the tribes of Israel until they came to the tribe of Judah. He waited until they'd gone through every person in Judah to all the families there, and they narrowed it down to the family of the Zarhites. He waited until they went through all the households, until they came to the household of his grandfather Zabdi and all of his kin. He waited 
And he waited until they'd gone through all of his brothers that were sons of his father, Carmi, until finally they narrowed it down to Achan. And when they finally reached him, that's when Achan confessed. Well, there wasn't any repentance in that. You know what was wrong with Achan? He was sorry he got caught for what he did. He didn't confess it. He had no repentance. You know, the same thing happened with Judas. Judas didn't repent. Now, in a measure, the Bible says he had some repentance, but really what he had was just remorse for what he'd done. He he never confessed his sin to God, and so he went out and hanged himself. But do you remember what happened with Peter? Peter also denied God, and yet Peter came to the Lord in godly sorrow. He realized what he did. He repented. He confessed his sin. He got right with God, and you know what happened to him? Jesus made him the rock, a rock in the church. Peter became a solid Christian because of repentance, because of confession. And here's the thing, folks. God can do the very same thing for you. Never be content to cover up your sin. Don't try to hide it. Now, of course, the very best thing for you to do is stay away from sin. Don't even get into sin in the first place. But when you do, don't hide it. Immediately, when you sin against God, the thing to do is confess it. Say, God, I'm sorry. God, I want to be back in fellowship. And when you do that, God gives us the promise that he immediately restores us to that fellowship. But what happens when you wait and you wait and you wait? Then the longer it takes to get back into the confidence of the people, back into the confidence of those that you love because of your sin. God can forgive of sin. He always does when you repent of it and you confess it. But the longer you go without confessing your sin and the deeper that you go, the longer that it's going to take to get back in, you might call it the good graces of God's people where people have confidence in you again. So the very best thing to do is immediately upon committing sin is to confess that sin and get right with God. So here's the gist of my message tonight. You, you don't want to be stuck with an aching, breaking heart. You don't want to be like Achan. You don't want to have sins that you've been covering up. You never want to be a person who forges out on your own without praying and asking God what you need to do as the next step in your life. If you do, what's going to happen to you? You're going to end up in the tragedy of Achan. Don't end up with an Achan breaking heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for good lessons that we learn from your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have these Old Testament texts that tell us just such great stories that illustrate principles that we need to put in place in our lives. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. I just pray as we sing this invitation hymn that if there's any Christian here tonight who's harboring sin in their life, some secret sin that they won't turn loose of, and that's affecting their family, it's affecting their fellowship with you, Lord, it may even be affecting our church that we don't see the blessings that we could otherwise have. I ask you, Lord, you would just speak to that person, show them they need to confess that sin, repent of the sin, and get back in fellowship with you. Bless our people tonight as we sing this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.